This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Cadiri. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera was born in Mexico and has spent her career focusing on U.S.-Mexico relations and issues around the border. She lived along the border in Brownsville, Texas for eight years and over the past decade has traveled along its length from Brownsville to San Diego collecting stories for a book she's working on about life along the border. Dr. Correa Cabrera is also a professor of policy and government at George Mason University and last week was the feature speaker in the 2023 FGCU Liebert World Affairs Lecture Series, giving two talks, Is Mexican Democracy Dying in President Lopez Obrador's Era and the Current State of U.S.-Mexico Relations, Partners or Distant Neighbors? I spoke with her on Friday, and our conversation focused on the state of U.S.-Mexico relations. We talked before the protests that happened on Sunday when tens of thousands of people gathered in Mexico City to protest President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's electoral law changes that they say threaten democracy in the country. Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera is a professor of policy and government at George Mason University. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. I'm a Mexican and American citizen. I was born and raised in Mexico. And my areas of expertise within the area of political science and public policy have been focusing on analyzing and studying the U.S.-Mexico relationship, U.S.-Mexico border relations, border security, organized crime, human trafficking, and irregular migration. Those are my areas of focus and expertise because I lived eight years at the border in Brownsville, Texas, Mm -hmm. and I have traveled all along the border from Brownsville, Matamoros, to San Diego, Uh, Tijuana. And this year, I'm going to be co-authoring a book uh, titled Frontera, A Journey Across the Mexico-U.S. Border with a journalist from Texas. We have traveled all along the border from Brownsville, Matamoros to Tijuana, San Diego, three times since the year 2013. And we have visited different cities on both sides of the border. So Mm. I'm an expert on border issues. Well, we'll try to focus on that then. Um, but first, you know, the topics of your talks, you know, focus around the current state of the Mexico-U.S. relationship. How would you characterize the current state of the U.S.-Mexico relationship? And is it a, on an improving trajectory or is it on a declining trajectory? It is a very good question because it depends on what you analyze or, I mean, from which point you analyze it. You would say that we're talking about greater or closer partners or distant neighbors. And this is why, you know, my talk is, you know, is asking the same question. It depends. There are some tensions, of course, in the relationship, but there have always been these tensions. And in certain sectors, in certain areas, Mexico and the United States have become closer. In other areas, they have become more far away or apart. But in the end, Mexico depends so much on the United States that is forced to follow, you know, United States interests, which is very interesting. In the year 2018, Mexico had presidential elections and elected uh, the current president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, that used to be very critical of the United States, a left-wing president that was critical of the dependency in the United States, wrote a book titled Hey Trump, you know, trying to make a, a, a statement with regards to the position of Mexico and, and trying to say to Trump, you don't have to address us Mexicans the way you're doing this. 
the building of the fence and, you know, the the allegations of Mexicans being criminals and rapers and, and bad actors. Um, however, in the end, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador ended um, in a very good in very good terms with the Trump administration, sending the National Guard to the southern border with Guatemala, the, the border with Guatemala, and basically, you know, accepting the terms of a renegotiation of what was then uh, called NAFTA, and now to is the USMCA. Exactly, U.S. Mexico Canada Trade Agreement. Yes. So, and he ended up visiting. Donald Trump in the White House went to Washington to see his first visit. I mean, just with the start of USMCA, that you know sealed the relationship that started to, I mean, started tense, but ended in very good terms. The same thing with the Biden administration. He took some time to um, to recognize the triumph by uh, Joe Biden because of the difficult. Uh, electoral process. So he didn't call to congratulate uh, Joe Biden to the presidency because he wanted probably to wait until things become clearer because it was a tense period in, in the United States. So many people saw that this was going to be a very tense relationship. And there have been tense moments when, for example, the I mean, but this was in during the during the times of Donald Trump, but still today, things that have to do with NAFTA, for example, um, the ban against the the imports of um, in Mexico of GMOs, uh, genetically modified corn in particular, and you know, United so States. So that's been banned from U.S. into Mexico. Into Mexico, or Mexico? okay. Uh, yeah, Mexican imports of genetically modified corn. I mean, and some seats as well. And the United States has complained. It has complained that Mexico didn't want to transit towards renewable energy. And they have been, you know, criticizing also the president for limiting the participation of DEA agents in its territory. And those were moments of tension with the United States government. But in the end, Andres Manuel López Obrador has been able to continue a relationship that's very functional for the United States' interest. Plan Sonora, for example, these new projects to advance towards the transition. That's a green energy thing, right? Exactly. That's right. It's a big project that requires uh, billions of dollars to be implemented. And the United States has offered the resources for the transition that will maintain Mexico more dependent on the United States. Renewable energies, just going with uh, the production of solar energy, also the production of wind energy and all other, not, I mean, renewable sources of energy in the state of Sonora, which is a very important state, the partnership for the extraction of lithium, the lithium sector, which is going to be, you know, and, and it's right now a very important mineral, and probably the construction of the salinization plants in the same state, which is a big thing. And mm. that's kind of like, you know, that was sealed just um, some weeks ago with the visit of the other two amigos, the, the summit of the North American leaders, uh, Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, and Andres Manuel. The other Lopez two Sobre. amigos? The other two <laughs> amigos, right. The three amigos were together in Mexico City. Hmm. They were laughing, taking photos. 
And in the end, Andrés Manuel López Obrador was very friendly. He talked about Canadian companies as doing a lot of good things. You know, he has been changing his narrative a little bit. He was very critical with regards to the transition toward renewables. He said that he was going to base uh, his energy sector on oil and gas, and now he's changing his mind. He has changed his mind several times. He was talking about abrazos, no balazos, hawks, not bullets, and finally he decided to institutionalize the role of the armed forces in in the uh, in the. This is his approach to narco-terrorism that you're referring to. Uh, this is a very interesting, um, you know, term that you're utilizing terrorism because there has been a an intention by several American politicians to denominate Mexican cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. The government of Mexico has been very reluctant to adopt this definition or to allow this definition to, to take place because it would undermine its sovereignty to a very large extent. Hmm. Today, there are proposals um, in the state of Texas in particular, not just to define the Mexican cartels, which is a very difficult thing to do because you never know who's a drug cartel or if we are talking about criminal paramilitary groups that dedicate to different activities. This is also something that is important. Some of these groups are specializing on extortion, kidnapping, and, you know, stealing fuel or uh, migrant smuggling and other activities, and they are not necessarily uh, centered on drug trafficking. Another thing that's important is that these uh, proposals, these initiatives of not only denominating the cartels, but sending the Department of Defense sending uh, unmanned planes, meaning drones, to destroy the cartels. And those uh, proposals are connected with the idea that cartels are foreign terrorist organizations. They commit acts of terror with the Mexican people. That's another thing, that denominating these organizations as terrorist organi- uh, as foreign terrorist organizations, is the domination is in the United States. They have affected the society, but the Mexican society, it mm. would be uh, uh, the Mexican government, you know, function to denominate them like that. Well, thank you for clarifying that because I, I used that term not fully understanding the how loaded it was. The implications, yes. absolutely. It's yeah. it's very it's a very delicate discussion that that we have had. The nominating cartels as foreign terrorist organizations would have a very direct impact on the capacity of U.S. law enforcement agencies, including the military, participating within the territory of Mexico. Former President Donald Trump, after he assumed as president, he was referring to the cartels or to the drug traffickers as the bad hombres, and he said that Mexican, the Mexican government cannot deal with their bad hombres. And this is why, you know, he had to send his own good hombres which means, you know, the law enforcement agencies of the United States to Mexican territory. And this is where a discussion started to take place, and Mexicans feel very uncomfortable of this. And, you know, this is a tension right now, but the Democratic uh, Party has not, uh, representatives have not been so um, inclined to further that um, those initiatives. This is more uh, Republican Party initiatives. But uh, it's probably going to be at the center of the discussions in the 2024 campaigns. You mentioned that you've spent a lot of time up and down the border. 
Um, what is the current state of the border? We hear things on the news. There's claims that are made. Like, how would you characterize what's going on on the U.S.-Mexico border these days, and how might it be in some ways different than 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago? This is a very good question. Um, absolutely, border management uh, has changed. Uh, enforcement has become more rigid. Absolutely. We see more people waiting to enter the United States on the Mexican side of the border. But in the United States, there are two main areas of concern. Drug trafficking, it's, border, it's, it's all concentrating on border security. It's all concentrating of the, on the area of security. And it has to do with undocumented migration, irregular migration on the one hand, and on the other hand, drug trafficking. This is for most Americans what matter about the U.S.-Mexico border. But the border is more than that. The border, I mean, represents, I, I mean, you ask me, what, what is the border about? Infrastructure, I mean, the, the, I mean the, the generation of infrastructure with regards to the production of energy, wind and solar, it's something that you uh, see more often when you travel along the border. I mean, trade infrastructure is also very important. Trade has not stopped since 1994, since the beginning of NAFTA. You know, you see more infrastructure that allows all the products going from south to north, north to south. That's another thing that we don't think about when talking about the border. Mm. We talk about people. We talk about the diversity of the border. We cannot just think about the border out of a place where a number of migrants are, you know, trying to enter and invade the United States of America. That's not what the border is about. There are uh, spaces where people are waiting for asylum. Things are probably going to change with the new policies, but people are going to continue trying to make it to the United States by other means, probably not applying for asylum, but with the help of smugglers. And that's one thing only. Drugs enter to the United States, probably with also the help of corrupt authorities, maybe from both sides of the border, but we don't talk about what really happens on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico borders or the, or the borderlands. And the border is more than just crime, poverty. It's a place of inequalities, but it's a place of opportunities too. It's a place that connects people that speak to different languages, and some of them speak uh, the two languages at the same time. Spanglish connect their food, their culture. It's it's a different place. The, the music, the opportunities that being part of a binational, bilingual society mean to you. So the border is much more than border security. And in a way, there are borders that are being, you know, erased. Uh, since NAFTA, we saw that the border was erased for, for goods, at, I mean, at least, not for people. And now with the technology, uh, we can talk more with people on the other side. So on the one hand, we see borders erasing themselves. But on the other hand, we see, you know, an intention of, I mean, marking or, or, or establishing certain limits and, and walls and infrastructure to manage uh, the movements of drugs and people in particular. But we also have to remember that drugs go down from the north. I mean, a lot of the violence that takes place on the Mexican side of the border and to the south has to do with the, I mean, it's done, it's perpetrated with arms coming from, from the north. 
mainly from the United States. Um, I've got a strange question. Um, you know, we, we hear so much about fentanyl that's coming from Mexico. I understand that it may not even be being made in Mexico or maybe, but um, is there an opioid problem in Mexico like there is in the United States? That's a great question. Um, you know, we have more drug consumption, definitely, throughout the years. Drugs are more consumed in Mexico. I don't see the levels of addiction that I see in the United States. This is why this is very important to understand from a very different perspective. We talked, we used to talk about the opioid epidemic. Now we're talking about the second phase of the opioid epidemic, the fentanyl crisis. That not necessarily has to do with Mexican drug cartels that was initiated by practices in the healthcare system of the United States that involve big pharma and that made people addicted to opioids. Absolutely, um, some substances arrive from China and they are uh, transported through Mexico. Some of these substances um, that you know are used to produce some narcotics, supposedly the production, some, some of this is done in China, some of this in Mexico, but but also, I, I guess that in the United States, when we don't talk about marijuana or our heroin, uh, we are talking about many types of drugs. If you go to Skid Row or the Third Avenue in Seattle or Kensington in Philadelphia, people are consuming everything, right? Mm-hmm. Not only fentanyl. Fentanyl is cheaper. So that's why uh, you know synthetic drugs have become very popular in the United States. I mean, and the consumption and the crisis has to do with a number of factors. That's why in Mexico we don't see the same levels of addiction probably. The United States society, many people are losing their home. I mean, there's a real estate crisis, I would say, in the U.S., more inequality, you know, the values, the the unhappiness. There are so many things that explain this. But what I don't understand is the policies to combat a drug trafficking in the U.S. The focus on the border, the focus on the South, when the focus need to be who is distributing the drugs in the United States? El Chapo Guzman or people of the Chapo Guzman, los chapitos? You know, Chapo Guzman, of course, is not. It, it's in prison right now. Um, the Sinaloa cartel or only gangs of people that are vulnerable, like, you know, African-Americans and Latinos mainly that are very poor, who is really obtaining these massive amounts of money from the distribution of drugs and the consumption in the United States? This is something that it's, it's, it's very important to consider, right? Why the solution has not been provided in a different direction? Um, spending those billions of dollars that have been spent since the since the creation of the DEA in programs to deal with the problem of addiction from a perspective of of public health. Last question, and we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, there's a million things that we can talk about. So President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, he's in his fifth of six-year term, and he only gets one term under the Constitution. Um, What's going to happen next, do you think? Will he try to extend it? Or are there parties that are in place to challenge him? Or does he have people who he has coming up behind him that will continue his policies? Like, what's next there? It is very difficult that he would suddenly 
you know, there's a military coup and he decides to maintain himself in power. He you mean you don't see that as being? I don't see that okay. as being an option, even though that option was mentioned by some members of the opposition in the previous years. He has said that many times. I don't think it's convenient. I don't think he was going to have the, the support. We're really not talking about other countries of Latin America. We're talking about a country that has a border with the United States of America. I don't think. I think he's a very smart person to understand what are his, his opportunities, even though he's very popular. He's very popular. He has the aspiration of achieving a full transformation. I don't understand how, you know, well, I, I, I do understand what this transformation is about. But in reality, there are not a lot of changes. And none of the changes were achieved. This is more something rhetoric, something about narrative. The, the poor goes first. Um, you know, the, the social programs have been extended, but the military uh, power also has been extended considerably in the country. And he wants his successor, a woman or a man, to continue the project. Um, he founded Morena Party, which is now the most important party in Mexico, has been able to win so many elections at the state and local levels. This is the main party in Mexico, just founded some years ago before the 2018 election. So, I, I mean, the opposition is extremely weak. They have done everything wrong. They don't appeal to the majority. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has been extremely popular and savvy to maintain his base of support. And I don't see any other party winning the election. And I think Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, his aspiration, and he understands that he cannot maintain himself in power, is to uh, elect his successor as a person that will continue his project and will probably allow him to still have some power. And that is Claudia Sheinbaum until today. Claudia Sheinbaum, who is, I would say, the, the governor, or he's governing, um, he's just the chief of government because he has, she has a different name than all the other governors of the different states. Mexico is Mexico City's a state. She is the chief of government of Mexico City. Apparently, she is the one that assures a continuation of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's project. Apparently. As of today, this is the way that we see Mexican politics. So his aspiration, to my understanding, is to support that continuation of his full transformation, or at least his full transformation would mean probably not a social, a deep social, economic, and political transformation, but a transformation that that is just the maintenance of his own project. Morena Party and, you know, the structures, the political structures that he created and has been able to consolidate during these five years. All right. Well, thank you for your insights. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, is a professor of policy and government at George Mason University. Dr. Correa Cabrera, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us and our listeners. Thank you very much, Mike. This has been a, a pleasure to talk with you and your audience. I spoke with Dr. Correa Cabrera on Friday before this weekend's protests when tens of thousands of people gathered in Mexico City to protest President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's electoral law changes that they say threaten democracy in the country. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7, FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.